The following program was made possible by Ward's lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Hey, how are you? My name is Denny Gringell, your host for the next something or other minutes. The images will forever be seared in our memories. Those of Afghans frantically trying to reach their airport in the desperate hopes of escaping their country. Mark Mitchell, who has a special relationship to that country, shares his perspective on those images later. Fleming College's Katrina Van Osh Saxon explains why mosquitoes just won't go away this year. You'll also hear how mosquitoes inspired a new game show in Kawartha Lakes. And Lindsay Bowen is back with a new well-defined word. No need to lather up with muscal and no swatting. This is the Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. September 7, this will be a back to school for students in Kawartha Lakes like no other. But hey, for those who don't opt for online learning, it means they'll at least be back in an actual classroom, albeit with guidelines. Some are hard and fast and others are strongly encouraged. Now keep in mind too that the Trillium Lakelands District School Board is one of the largest boards geographically in the province at least, which can also present challenges in implementing these rules. At the helm, steering this ship in new waters, is Wes Hahn, Director of Education for the TLDSB. He joins me now. Mr. Hahn, uh, I know this is a, a busy time for you, so um, I especially want to thank you for, for just making the time for me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. Hey, I recognize uh, it's often difficult to make a, um, a blanket opinion of your entire school board because it is large and uh, you have more than mm -hmm. 50 schools. But what are you expecting on the morning of September 7. I'm just wondering what parents and students should be prepared for in Kawartha Lakes. We've been at this for a year now, unfortunately, and um, we learned a lot over the, the course of a year. And we learned how to start up last year. It was very chaotic. Um, but, you know, when I look back at what we learned about the startup and, and um, the health and safety procedures that we put in place and all of, all of the decisions that we made, we made a lot of good decisions. And we made some that we knew we would do differently. So I think we, we've we learned a lot about it and we're ready to go this time. So, you know, when you get a chance to run through something and then do it again, you certainly get better at it. You mentioned you're doing some things differently. Can you give me an indication of what you may or may not have done a year ago that you're doing now? Yeah, one of the things that we needed last year was time to organize our timetables. And so we did a staggered start, which, which was fine. It's just that we didn't really understand necessarily the entry procedures of a school, how we were going to move students about both in elementary and secondary and make sure they entered the building. You know, we were trying to avoid large groups of people coming together and we still are. So now we have, we have those procedures really worked out in and refined uh, as to how students will enter the building, move about through the building, which areas of the buildings they can use. Like we really understand that a lot better. We also understand, um, you know, our protocols around screening, we kind of put those together as the ministry and the medical health officer informed us throughout the year. We know those things now um, and have them in place and our administrators are well aware of it. Our families are well aware of that. And some of the changes have kind of, uh, I'd say, lightened up a little bit as far as uh, what they were last year. The main part of this has been the vaccination rate. I think that really has as much as we'd like it to be higher, I think that certainly uh, sent a message to uh, through the ministry from the chief medical health officer that 
it was safe to release some of the, the stringent uh, procedures that were in place, like cohorting, for example. In elementary, students within the building still have to remain within their cohort or class. We're not going to mix students. We're not going to have them intermixing throughout in the hallways or, or mixing them with other classes. But when they go outside for recess this year, um, they are going, they're not, they don't have to remain in their cohort. They can move about and they don't need to have their masks on outside. In secondary, um, we are going to have sports back on and extracurricular activities and clubs and things like that. So, you know, between vaccination rates, understanding the virus, the ventilation improvements, all those have kind of led to us being a little bit more getting back to that normalcy kind of way of operating in a school you know, we get our main direction from as our chief medical health officer. So yes, we do think vaccinations are incredibly important. And um, however, uh, you know, as far as the protocol that's that's been given to us, yes, it does strongly encourage vaccines. No question about it. It does, but it, le- it does leave teachers that out to not do it and it, go through the rapid testing. So am I, am I allowed to ask you what the uptake has been amongst uh, staff and percentage points of people who've been double vaccinated? Yeah. We don't have that yet because we're just in the process of, of, of gathering that information. We will have to post it publicly, though. By mid-September, we will have a report for the ministry and for our public that will be on our board website that will show the percentage of vaccinated staff. And those who choose not to have to have a medical exemption, as I think is published in the, in, in the media. You know, it's not a full out um, mandatory for everybody or else there are pieces in there that uh, staff, um, you know, can choose not to get vaccinated, but they will have to uh, get tested, as you mentioned. Um, But students uh, and students and parents may not know if the teacher educating their kids has or has not been vaccinated. They'll just have an overall percentage, you're saying. That's correct, because it is public health uh, privacy information that is protected and it cannot be shared individually. So. We can share overall rates as a school board, but not individuals. So much of the plan, uh, the back to school plan by the province, it really is predicated on trust. You know, the, the need for staff to, to self-screen, for instance. I'm just wondering, in your role, how, how do you go about um, enforcing or at least monitoring that? The screening protocol we, we do have for staff is both in electronic format at all of our building sites. So it's a scan code, a QR code, which uh, staff go into um and and answer the questions that we're all used to seeing now a year into the pandemic about symptoms and and things like that it is an honor system that if you're feeling any of these symptoms you're not to come into work and uh, proceed to get tested and remain in in quarantine so those kind of steps are you know we we have to rely on an individual to do that and, and to remain at home and have we seen uh over the course of the year staff follow that protocol or students and parents report that they're keeping them home absolutely so um and knowing the rates of our our transmission here they were very very low we only had five or six and those were not transmitted within the building they were community spread and we were able to stop it before it spread within our building so we we did a very good job of of not only you know cleaning and 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 making sure all that is done, but screening and keeping it out of our building. I'm going to pick up on that point. You mentioned how we had fewer numbers here than we would uh, see in, in <laughs> you know, in a, in a metro school in downtown Toronto. And mm-hmm. the government has also said that they're going to leave up uh, the implementation of these rules, in many cases, to the individual schools and the individual school boards. Um, can you give me an example of how 
that may have an effect uh, on the schools within your board compared to a school in a hot spot in in Toronto, for instance. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think there's you know one of the one of the restrictions that were on us over the course of the year was the use of spaces within a building, um, and you know things like lockers and and cafeterias and lunchrooms and things like that were restricted. The ministry has said that those spaces are now and can be used and but it's really up to the school board to decide how and and you know the access to that and and also the access to the building from visitors or volunteers and things like that so i would imagine in in hot spot areas um, some of my colleagues would be putting probably some tighter restrictions on those you know the rate at which we open up or allow those spaces to be used is probably going to be different than some of the hotter spots, but I, I still have to say we're taking a very cautious approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just may get there a little quicker than maybe some of the other larger areas. When you look at this area here, you take a school in uh, in Kirkfield or Bethany, and uh, just physically there aren't as many people in those buildings as there might be in a, a downtown Lindsay school. So how, how do you weigh those things where, you know, when you're implementing rules, can you say that, okay, Lady McKenzie out there, these are your rules. Eh, the ones at Leslie Frost, that might be a bit different. I don't think so. It, you know, we're trying to be consistent. So the consistency provides comfort, I think. And it also, you know, makes sure that uh, people really understand what we're trying to do from a health and safety point of view. Where we might see that a little bit is in our secondary schools where, you know, the number of students in some of our schools get up around 1,000, 1,100, and then we have, a you know, three, 400 in some how they manage their lunch hours, how they do some of the movement, those things have some flexibility because of the number of students. But overall, we really try to create a consistent approach so parents understand across the system, this is how we are approaching the safety in, in our schools. And it has been a benefit, I, I believe. What can you tell me about the teachers and how they've had to adapt to all of this? I mean, they've there's been some huge learning curves for them as well. So what are you hearing from them? The, no doubt some anxiety and certainly stress throughout the course of the year. Um, I would like to say that they're feeling confident in the board and, and every indication says that they're feeling confident, but I still think there's some anxiety for everyone coming back in. I think it's it's one of those things that we have to prepare for and understanding met with administrators this week. Um, we will look after their their mental health and student mental health first and their safety first and then work our way back into uh, the regular routine of school. But regular routines are very, very important for everyone. And getting back into that mode of teaching and learning is a really good strategy to get people through it all. So we think they're feeling good about it, but we know there's anxiety and and we'll be there to support. For the parent uh, and the student of any age who's approaching all of this with a bit of angst, what would you tell them just to ease their mind? Yeah, I, I certainly, I certainly empathize, and I certainly understand as a parent, you know, how parents would be feeling. Um, you know, we've we've unfortunately been through this, and unfortunately had to become good at it as a school board, and we are. I like to show our trustees and our community that we do have low case rates. So, you know, we've we've been getting good at it. We have an incredibly good facilities department that works incredibly hard with custodians and cleaning high touch surfaces, they're working nonstop. We've had um, 
increases in, in uh, upgrades to our ventilation system. And I think this is really important for parents to know that our, uh, we received an incredible, uh, uh, some great news this week that we are having over 760 portable HEPA filters that will be placed in classrooms throughout our school board that clean the air. So with the low cases, with what we've done and our, our ability to keep transmission low, our processes and this additional ventilation uh, funding, we think we're in a great spot to be very safe. My thanks to Wes Hahn for that conversation. In the coming days, we'll post a longer version of that interview with the Director of Education for the TLDSB. My name is Danielle Hiddink from Ward's Lawyers and Lindsay, your official sponsor of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Gortha Lakes. Heck of a time to launch a summer theater. Then again, one could argue this was the best time to launch a summer theater, especially an outdoor summer theater. The New Grove Theater in Fenland Falls, nestled amongst some trees near the town's arena, is now in the last third of its inaugural season, which naturally saw some adjustments to its original programming. But by all accounts, the future looks bright and promising, according to its general manager and newcomer to Kawartha Lakes, Nicole Mitchell. I sat down with Nicole at the theater recently when she told me of her inaugural season's opening night, which was sold out, but because of the year we've all had, was especially special. I do a pre-show speech before each of the shows, and I cried at the very first one. Like, I walked out, and I just, I, I may do it again. Um, but just the, just the fact that all those people we're here and like happiness for them that they are able to do something but then also that theater we're able to do something again because it has been so hard for the last year and a half like there so many people have been hit hard by this but the theater industry has been really hard well i want to talk about that because originally your season you had big production plays like actual theater actors plays big production yeah and at some point you had to make the decision that that's not going to happen we're going to have to scale it down to productions that involve dare we say less production uh, yeah. you know music and and in stand-up comedy uh in monologue so take me to that decision what that was like having to that word we hear so much having to pivot into that what was that like yeah that was it was really hard uh i had just I had just started with the Grove in January. So of course I'm, you know, jumping on a quickly moving train already. You know, everybody has been working, you know, we've had volunteers working to get the Grove up and running for many years already. And so I came on as the first employee in January. And so was just catching up with that. And so was 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 moving and trying to get things to happen. And then suddenly one of our artistic directors called me and she said, I don't know that we're actually going to be able to do this. Like, do you feel comfortable with this? What was your reaction? I, I was very mixed because I was like, but we have to. We have to keep going. The show must go on. Yes. And yeah, yeah. But deep down, like I knew that this was going to be really difficult. Our plan was to bring, you know, 15 actors to Kawartha's and house them somewhere and a band of five and technicians and at different points there was like you know there was a capacity of the theater as a whole 
and not not the percentage but as a as a whole and pretty much our artists and technicians and like the crew took up everything that you would have been able to have in the theater so it's like well okay so are we going to just present to five people that would be great if we could actually afford to do that but it wasn't actually a thing that we could do and so finally like trying to piece that all together and and also just knowing that everyone's safety then is in our hands and none of us at that time felt comfortable how did you manage to keep all those balls in the air without them falling down yeah i i mean i'm i won't lie i'm sure there are balls that will have fallen uh in fact there are we're starting to make a list of things that need improvement or that we can do better or that we completely want to change for next time Um, because opening a new venue and producing during covid it's all a lot really anything that happens next year is going to be infinitely easier Theatre is such a small community, even though it is large, but it is such a small community. And all of us have worked together at various places at one time or the other. Um, So those are kind of the contacts that I'm reaching out to is people that I've worked with before or just have known in the industry. So, yes, they gladly help out. Theatres of this size albeit professional and you know you're not this isn't a little black box theater in the back of a shopping mall (laughs) yeah but theaters of this size uh, given that you know the people of Fenelon they can't drive to necessarily to Stratford and in the Shaw like in an hour and be back what does this kind of theater mean to the community that surrounds it right now I think our season most of our audience has been locals or cottagers um And I think that's a huge thing, especially for right now, because it's bringing the community together when we've been sent home for so long. Um, And so it's just a nice way to bring the community back together. Um, And then also some of the acts that we have are acts that they haven't seen in the Korthas before. Just none of the, the venues that are here now offer the same type of programming. And that was intentional when we opened we didn't want to be globus theater we didn't want to be fourth line we you know we don't want to be Lindsay little theater or academy you know we need uh different things here on our stage and so that's what we're we're hoping to do we do want to expand more on getting the community on the stage as well and not just in the audience um and that will be really exciting once we have enough staff and just resources here inside that we can facilitate all those things and that and that really eclectic collection on the stage so um what about you though what did it say about you and your relationship to the community when it opened yeah but I think that gave me a home you know until then it was just like oh I was that outsider that was coming to you know make things happen here and now I feel like I have a home in the community. Hi, I'm Nicole Mitchell, and I'm from Fenland Falls. And you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. You're a performer, you can tell. <laughs> we are 100% local media with a host slash producer who lives amongst you in your neighborhood. And we are part of The Advocate Online in The Advocate Magazine. The September issue is now available and focuses largely on the upcoming federal election 
and where our local candidates stand on issues that matter to you. You can pick up a copy of the latest issue at the Ultramar gas station on Highway 36 and Country Cupboard in Fenland Falls, among many other locations in Kawartha Lakes. You can subscribe to our program on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, which we hope you'll do because our continued success, it's all driven by downloads. And hey, we're free, courtesy of our official sponsor, Ward's Lawyers. For all your legal needs, Carissa and Jason Ward and their team have you covered. Find them at wardlegal.ca. About 10 years ago, Mark Mitchell took a leave from his then job as an inspector with our local police service. He did so to be part of a team in Afghanistan that helped mentor and train that country's national police service. Mark Mitchell was in Afghanistan for a full year in that role, working and living alongside the Afghan people. The images we've seen recently of Afghan people trying to escape their home country, some even clinging to outgoing planes in futile desperation, well, they're unsettling, disturbing, tragic for those of us who've never even set foot in that country. Well, I sat down with Mark, who is now the chief of the KLPS in his office. You'll hear his thoughts on what transpired recently in that beleaguered country. But I started out by first asking Mark how he initially felt shortly after returning from his 12 months in Afghanistan. Very proud uh, of, of my time there. Uh, but I came back with a real uh, impression that it was going to take at least a generation of investment uh, from the international community if we were going to have uh, any kind of success there. And, and even then, uh, you had to be real careful how you were going to define success because it was a country that had been in a constant state of conflict for about 50 years. And so there was, uh, you were building everything from scratch. There was no, uh, there was no health care. There was no justice system. There was no reliable system of governance. There was no infrastructure. Huge portions of, of the population were, were functionally illiterate. So you didn't come home rubbing your hands together going, well, I guess my work is done there. Like, I get the sense that you were maybe optimistic, but also a little guarded or skeptical. Is uh, that fair? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly uh, felt like I had uh, done my job there, but but the... But the greater job certainly was was still far from far from being done. Hmm. Okay, well let's yeah. let's fast forward then. Of a couple of weeks ago, those images on television, um, people rushing the airport, cling, literally clinging to planes. What were you feeling? What was going through your mind when you saw those images? Given your relationship, your very personal relationship with some of the people there. Yeah, boy, I I, I went through uh, a real range of emotions. Um, over the weekend, and, and uh, I'll, I'll get to the images at the airport in a moment, but, but the, the image that really uh, struck me and I found very disheartening was the, the convoy, convoy of Taliban fighters ent entering the city. And, uh, you know, I'm watching these vehicles stream into the city with, with fighters, uh, you know, clinging onto them. And then I saw an Afghan police vehicle in that convoy, and then an Afghan army truck in that convoy, and an uh, up-armored Humvee in that convoy. And these were all vehicles that had been provided to the Afghan security forces and uh, were now in the hands of the Taliban. And so to me, that was very uh, symbolic. 
Um, my initial reaction was uh, was a lot of anger. Um, very, and, I, and I'm still very disappointed uh, in how quickly the Afghan security forces capitulated. Um, Are you surprised? I, I was. Um, you know, I, I understand the reasons for it. Um, you know, the the uh, decision to withdraw all NATO forces uh, on a fairly short timeline was uh, was of course demoralizing uh, to the Afghan security forces. Uh, their casualty rate over the years has been uh, has been very high, so they've been you know they've been paying a price for security in their own country for for a number of years. Uh, you know, so those are those are very valid uh, reasons that people need to understand. Uh, but in spite of all that, they've still had you know twenty years of significant investment and uh, and your involvement, people like you, exactly. And I I, I still believe that they should have uh, resisted the Taliban. They, you know, there were three hundred thousand. Um, soldiers in the Afghan army and, and, you know, the highest estimate of of the Taliban was that it was a force of about 80,000. They should have done better. Uh, You know, I said I went through a range of emotions and, um, you know, I I, I was definitely angry to see, you know, that 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 equipment had just fallen into basically the enemy's hands, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, but also a lot of sadness. Uh, the anger was pretty quickly replaced with sadness uh, for the plight of, of the people of Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't think the final chapter's uh, been written there yet. And I think uh, the people of Afghanistan will have to write that final chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that looks like is, is anybody's guess right now. I don't for a second uh, believe that the Taliban has uh, significantly changed. Do you feel your time there allows you maybe an insight that like a person like myself might not have seen? Like when you were there, do you have evidence to go, look, I, I you know, I, I saw what was going on first. Yeah, night. absolutely. And, and you know, it's, uh, again, you know, early on in my time there, you know, sometimes it was easy to get frustrated uh, with the Afghan uh, people. Because they uh, they knew uh, who didn't belong in their village, and they knew uh, where they and but they were reluctant to say because they weren't convinced that we were going to uh, be in it for the long haul. Maybe history has has proven them right, but at the same time, we you know I go back you know we did uh, we did spend twenty years there. We we made significant uh, investments. Um, and at some point, uh, they were they were going to have to to stand up for their own country. So you know, a lot a lot of uh, mixed emotions. And the other thing um, that I would mention is, I I, I had a relationship with with some uh, members of the Afghan uh, police, which was kind of constrained because of the the language barrier. Our, our conversations always occurred through a translator. But a lot of them aren't around anymore. A lot of them have died or have been killed since my time there. I, the, there's only one Afghan police leader uh, 
um, that I'm aware of. Are you still in touch with them or anybody? No, because of because of the the language uh, barrier. I'm st- I'm still in touch with a number of uh, international uh, partners from my time there. You've sat with the Afghan people, be it the ones who are working uh, with the police forces. So you you can put a face to them, you can put a voice to them. It's not just images on a screen for the rest of us. What can you tell us about them, especially in light of everything that they're dealing with now? Um, I, I can tell you that uh, they are very, very hungry for uh, a better way of life, uh, and in particular, uh, education. But at the same time, they're also wary of um, outside influences. And, you know, the, the scenes that um, that we've seen over the last week, I think, were, uh, were their worst nightmare and what they always kind of expected. They knew uh, at some point in the future uh, that NATO forces were going to leave uh, and that the Taliban was, was going to try, uh, was going to come back or at least try to come back. And they were always wary of that. That's why I think they uh, were often reluctant uh, to uh, appear as though they were siding with, with NATO forces um, and it was safer for them to just adopt a policy of, um, you know, remaining neutral. And, uh, you know, while that was, while that could be frustrating uh, for us, uh, over time you came to understand it was, it was kind of a survival mechanism for them. When you look back on your contribution there 12, 12 years ago or so, how, how do you feel about that, that time that you spent there now? As I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm very proud of my service there. Canada, you know, paid a significant price uh, in terms of, uh, you know, young men and women that went over there. And, and uh, I think uh, 160 uh, never, you know, never came home. Uh, many others uh, still bear the scars of their time there. Um, and that's a significant um, sacrifice on our part. But I think it's, uh, it was a worthwhile endeavor. It was, a, it was, at its core, it was a noble cause. Do I you still, still feel that now? I, I still believe that. Uh, and if we're not prepared to uh, help others who are less fortunate, uh, then I think we need to be honest that, uh, you know, we're, we're in some cases just going to abandon people uh, to a very tragic fate. We can't physically uh, intervene in, in every situation. And, and there needs to be a very, uh, there needs to be a very careful analysis of, um, you know, action and reaction. Uh, and, uh, but at some point, uh, we need to, uh, you know, we, we need to stand up for, uh, humanitarian causes. And, and sometimes that's going to require, uh, us, you know, uh, to put ourselves in positions where we're going to have to make these, these sacrifices. You know, I have the utmost respect for, for our Canadian forces and, and for all those who, who served over there because they all readily accepted that risk in pursuit of that goal.
You're listening to the Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes, brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Ward's Lawyers. If you're looking for a lawyer, their many legal services will most certainly have you covered. Check them out at wardlegal.ca. Okay, Guy, I trust you're listening right now. Guy is one of our show's loyal listeners, and one of his favorite segments is one that involves increasing your word power and stuff. It features Lindsay Bowen of Kawartha Public Library, and it's called Well Defined. Well Defined. Well Defined. What does that mean, anyway? I am inside the Lindsay branch of Kawartha Public Library for our regular Well Defined segment. Inside. It's so great to be able to say that I'm actually inside. This is refreshing, Lindsay Bowen. I recognize there's some caution attributed to this as well, but uh, the fact that we can sit across from each other. Well, we're so happy to see everyone again. Everyone's done a fantastic job of sort of over the phone calling in and saying what they'd like or placing holds on books themselves to the catalog, but it doesn't beat coming and browsing the shelves and uh, seeing people face to face and even just having those quick social interactions with our staff. And so we're really, really happy to see that at all 14 of our library branches. It was a bit of an adjustment at first, really. Um, Some of our library branches are mostly one person branches. So for them, it's more interacting with the patrons. Um, But for us here, it's nice to to work together on projects again and uh, and do some programs and uh, yeah, really collaborate. Uh, So I did mention you can still browse shelves and go on computers, and that's fantastic. For programs, we're mostly sticking for outside programs for now. We ran a fantastic summer reading club and had outside programs at all of our library branches. And that's going to continue a little bit more early literacy focused in the fall, um, because of course a lot of kids are going to back in school. And there's a few programs inside. I know our Fenland Falls branch has a sewing program, but just due to numbers right now, we want people to be able to feel free to come in and browse the shelves and look around. So a lot of outside programs, but uh, we know families here aren't afraid to uh, bundle up once it gets a little chillier and still enjoy a great story and craft and activity outside. We're hearty in Kawartha Lakes Fire, yeah. We sure are. (laughs) We sure are. Okay, so what do you have for us in our uh, new installment of Well Defined for us, Lindsay? Well, as we quickly talked about, a lot of kids will be going back to school in the fall. And uh, I'm sure that there are some children and parents who are a little bit anxious about that after such a long break. But I know, um, as someone who did go to school to be a teacher, um, that I'm sure teachers have the perspicacity to be understanding and patient with their students in terms of both academic and social well-being. How often did you practice that word? Pers- many, many times. Okay, perspicacity. I, I, walk me through that through syllables. Pers. Perspicacity. Perspicacity. You got it. Okay, and what does that mean? So it's mostly just having a keen insight into things, which really provides a deep understanding. So in this case, uh, teachers are going to be very practical and comprehend where all their students are at and be really understanding of this uh, transition back into school again. You are still a teacher at heart, I guess. I sure am. (laughs) Perspicacity, that's the word. the game show everyone in Kawartha Lakes loves to hate. Annoying insects that we hate an awful lot. Let's welcome our first contestant to Annoying Insects That We Hate An Awful Lot. We've got Dennis Gregnoon. A gringo, actually. It's Denig. <laughs> That's great. Tell us about yourself. Oh, okay, well, I'm married with two sons. I live between Dunsford and Downeyville. Oh, and I host the Advocate Podcast. <laughs> Super! Ready to play? Y- yeah, sure. Here's your category. This annoying insect that we hate an awful lot is called a mosquito. 
but it is also often referred to this way, using many hyphens. Danny, do you know the answer? I sure do. A mosquito, especially this late in the season in Corth Lakes, is often referred to as... Oh, that is correct. We would also have accepted... That's the only time you'll hear me curse, uh, other than, you know, when I'm doing home renovations, uh, playing old-timers hockey or softball. Okay, anyway, the point is we've all been cursing mosquitoes more this year, it seems, and for much longer. I'm basing this on research I made up just now in my head and some casual conversations with friends who agree this year has been a bounty year for the annoying insects. But to confirm or debunk these assertions, I am joined now by Katrina Van Osh-Saxon. She is a professor in urban forestry with Fleming College and the coordinator of the Arboriculture Program. Okay, Katrina, is this all in my head? When it comes to mosquitoes, their numbers, their lifespan, how much they can make us curse, how does this year compare to others? Well, it is definitely uh, a busier year for mosquitoes, but that can be explained pretty uh, easily by the amount of rain and precipitation that we have received. Um, and early on in the spring, we didn't see, um, like our black fly population was a lot lower um, this year because we had such a dry spring. I don't know if you remember way back to, um, you know, the May-June where we didn't get rain. I, I do remember that. And if I may, I, I at the time, my wife and I were, were positing that, hey, you know what, maybe we're not going to have... Yes. The mosquito season we've had, it seemed like it started, yes. did it start later? Is that my imagination? It, it did. Um, but but if you if you look back, it kind of coincided with when we started to get rain. And I can't remember a summer where we've had this much rain. And usually at this time of year, our, you know, our green fields are parched, right? They're brown. Um, you know, farmers are praying for rain. But this year, um, people were having a hard time getting on fields and cutting hay because we had so much rain. And so it's been a really great growing year for trees, especially because we've had gypsy moth. But <laughs> mosquitoes rely on water to complete their life cycle. They're larval stage is aquatic which means the, the eggs are laid in the water and when those eggs hatch they must have water in order to reproduce um, because that's where they live and so all of this water has created the perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes but is it much different than in previous years i, I recognize we've had more rain but if, i guess if i'm looking at a pie chart here or, or some kind of a graph exponentially did that much more rain is that responsible for that many more mosquitoes or can there be anything else in, environmentally that caused it? Well, I think, you know, um, they, they do have peaks and valleys for sure. But once you have a growing breeding population, it just keeps growing. If there is habitat for them, you will have a greater population. You know, um, we have a low spot on our property in a swampy area. And usually at this time of year, it's dry. Um, but this year, it's held water since we started to get rain in early June. Um, and so it's just been a mecca for mosquitoes. So we got tricked into this a little bit. They started late because it was so dry. And then when the rainy season started, it started later. And it started in buckets and buckets and buckets. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yes, we, we, had, we had rain here especially. So I live in Cobalconk, but we had rain either every day or every other day. Like, I did not have to water my garden at all in July, which is 
pretty unheard of for me uh, up in this area. And it might have been different across in other parts of Ontario. Of course, that, that those weather patterns change. But up here, for sure, we had our fair share of uh, rain. Would you say there's one area in Kawartha Lakes that's maybe more um, habitat friendly for mosquitoes than others? Mm, well, anywhere where you have um, wetlands, so that are established wetlands that hold water. So um, because we have so many uh, water bodies in wetland areas, for sure, those areas would have a higher population. Um, and where you have dense cover, so any kind of vegetation, and that includes fields and grass, um, that's where they find a lot of moisture. You'll notice, you know, in the morning, if you go outside with the heavy dew, when you walk through your grass, you kick up a good population of mosquitoes. Um, so anywhere that is uh, warm and moist, any of us, you know, that have lived in, in this area would know that if I walk in the middle of the day from my field where it's hot and dry, kind of, you know, during mid midsummer days, into the forest, that's where they all kind of hide. Not one specific area, I would say. There was a cold spell not long ago. In fact, uh, I, I almost did this interview a few weeks ago, and then it got cool, and I went, oh, great, the mosquitoes are gone. They're and, gone. And now they're back again. So <laughs> uh, how how cold does it have to be for how long a stretch so that the mosquitoes can go away? <laughs> Hope I'm not losing you on the technical jargon there. No, no, definitely not. You have to have, actually, to, for them to go away, you need to have a freeze. But the magic number for insect development is 10 degrees. And if you remember that those cold periods, some of those nights drop down. Like we've had nights that drop down to nine degrees. Right. And, and I thought that was, and that's when I thought, great, they're gone. I'm yeah. never going to see them again. <laughs> it, it said psych. So um, at, at 10 degrees, anything below that, they slow down. They don't necessarily stop. The weather has to, you, we have to have a hard, like a good hard freeze. That's why after your first frost, You'll notice that the insect populations, because a lot a lot of die-off happens then, but after we, usually after we have our first frost, we have temperatures um, climb back up past 10 degrees, and so you'll still see insect activity. So you need multiple days of um, you know hard freezes to kill off most of the insect populations. So it's a slow process, usually in the fall. They're like, kind of like um, reptiles, where the temperature um, moderates you know, their body activity. And so they, they, they just slow down. If you, if you find an insect when in the cold temperatures, that's not below zero, if you put it in your hand, um, if it's not a stinging insect or whatever, if you put it in your hand, once it warms up over 10 degrees, it will become active. And then as soon as you release it into that cooler temperatures, it will slow down again. So they are very uh, responsive to the temperatures. In your estimation here, and I'm not going to hold you to, to any of this, what do you think we can expect in the coming weeks or maybe coming months at this point, Katrina? It depends on the temperature and the weather. <laughs> That's my best uh, prediction. And the other thing to remember about mosquitoes is they're an amazing food source for a lot of um, other insects, uh, mammals, birds. Um, and so it's a good thing from an ecological standpoint, they are really important. Um, as much as they bother us, you know, they're, they're great for, for the ecosystem. Well, and we're a food source for them too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I'm Katrina Van Osh Saxon. I'm from Kobaconk, and you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes.
slight correction there. You just listened to the Advocate Podcast. And you can listen again and again and again to any of our 38 episodes. Subscribe for free on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can go to lindsayadvocate.ca and follow the links. Very simple. It's all free thanks to Ward's Lawyers. They're the reason this show exists. If you need a lawyer, check them out at wardlegal.ca. You can reach us on Facebook and Twitter, and yes, even Instagram. Please tell others about our show, a show that's about us for us. Our theme music was created and performed by Gerald Dan Halteran. Today's show was written and produced by me, Denny Grignot. We got some help from the Cheese Factory Road players of Nancy Payne, Yannick, Jonah, and Rose Anderson Duval. Hey, let's all work together and give it 100%, shall we? Or at least 90%? You, you know what I'm referring to, right? Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye.